0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and
1: colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been? I've not been too bad, Gary, not too bad at all. So just... And how are you? <laughs> the, the rarest of all questions. <laughs> well, I, I, I left a pause in there and then threw it at you so you, you thought the moment had gone by and then suddenly there it was.
0: I'm good, Michael. I I am as good as I always am. Actually, no, I'm slightly happier than normal because um, something came out which showed that we were right. Or likely right. Because, you know, you've got to leave in some potential to be wrong.
1: Yeah, a couple of things, actually, the last few couple of weeks we've been right. And it's not that we're always right, although, well, let's face it, you know, there's no point in being silly about these things. We are right most of the time. You don't sound bitter at all. No, I'm not bitter. I'm like the Murphys.
0: The last episode we were talking about uh, some of the stats involving women's safety. Yes. And one of the points we were making there was about... People were talking a lot about fear and how women felt. And we were talking about how one of the most effective ways of combating fear is to make people aware of the underlying reality, because fears can get disengaged from the actual risk. And when that happens, you know people's lives can suffer because they become anxious and consumed about things that may actually not be all that likely to happen to them. But a, a point we made was that it is in everyone's interest in relation to politicians, the media, NGOs, to lean into those fears to the greatest extent possible. Because there's no cost if you do so. And if you say, ah, well, that's not really a big issue and another case happens, even if it's perfectly in line with what you would expect uh, statistically and there's no real increase, you will get blamed. So you always lean in and you basically don't let a tragedy go to waste or at least make sure a tragedy doesn't leave you less popular than you were before it happened.
1: Yeah, it's an opportunity to display how much you care. And how seriously you take this and you and anybody who comes along, say Gary, and questions the nature of the numbers or how the presentation or whatever it is, you end up looking at best like some kind of Dickensian grad grind analytical types who is just detached from the world. Or at worst, somebody who actively doesn't care about the safety of women and girls and what kind of person are you? And are you actually defending in some bizarre, indirect way the right of women, of, of men, to uh, to use violence against women? It's there isn't there isn't much of an upside into questioning or to challenging the narratives that come out of people who want to make who want to come out as being the champions of the safety of women, even though obviously we are people who have you have a wife, you have a mother, you have, I have, you have sisters, I have a sister, a mother. we obviously are human beings and we care very deeply about the safety of these people, but we just think that <clears throat> their safety is not aided by telling what what well, look at times like falsehoods. Now the first part of dealing with any issue is being
0: able to determine the truth of the issue, the extent of it, where it's happening, how it's happening, and all of this sort of stuff is not very helpful to that. People seem to think that saying your statistics are wrong on this or or this is this likely instead of that likely means that you are uh, trying to undermine the importance of it. Whereas my own personal view has always been that it is a very important issue, as is crime in general. But surely the fact it's an important issue means we should strive to talk about it accurately, and not let ourselves uh, you know, get a bit beyond what research indicates is actually happening. And to be
1: serious-minded about how we do the research. So the
0: two things have, have sort of happened in relation to that since the last podcast we did. One is something we've talked about previously, and one is something that is just in the news now, and no one has really questioned, uh, but is definitely questionable. The one that we've talked about before was... Um, needle spiking. The reports that young women had been being spiked by people using uh, hypodermic needles to administer various types of, of drugs to them. And we talked about this, and we ran through some of the technical issues with it, we ran through some of the research with it, and we recounted that this was highly unlikely to actually be happening, and it was far more likely that what we were seeing was uh, contagion psychological contagion that reports on this had started in England had been picked up on the internet and then women in Ireland started claiming it was happening to them and then it got into the newspapers
1: here and just all hell broke loose and we had we had heavyweight politicians coming out and weighing in on the subject we had people from the security uh, and uh, policing end talking about it we had the press talking about it and it was a big serious issue and without Actually, on the face of it, any real evidence? And it also, it, it's one of those classic panics as well, isn't it? I mean, it had all of the hall, hallmarks of one of those sort, uh, sort of security panics that come out every so often.
0: Yeah, I, I had a brief exchange with Regina Doherty, who was talking about it online, and she was saying about how women were afraid of this, and they had to be afraid of this, and take precautions. And I made the point that there's no evidence this is actually happening, and that as one of the most senior politicians in the country, because remember, Regina Doherty is not just a Fine Gael senator, she's the leader of the Janet. Uh She should not make these sort of statements before there was evidence. And she told me that the difference between her and me was that she uh, believed victims. And there is an interesting linguistic point there, because to say that someone is is a victim is to presuppose that what they say happened to them happened. You're only a victim if you were victimized. And anyway, we had a bit of back and forth on that. I wrote a couple of articles on it, which pissed a surprising amount of people off because I said, I don't think this is really happening. I'm You, know, you accept the possibility that you're wrong because any crime or allegation of crime should be fully uh, investigated.
1: And also, let's face it, people are capable of doing the most remarkable, horrible things. I mean, it's hard to imagine something, inventing something that at some stage some human being hasn't done to another human being. So that gets us today. So what's
0: happened now? The Irish Examiner, to be fair to them, reported that the guards have found no evidence in their investigation of any of these cases that any needle was involved in any of them. Now this comes on the back of the BBC reporting that the police force in Scotland, which had been a lot of these cases had been in Scotland, they had found no evidence to support the claims and the forensic analysis had found no traces of drugs used for spiking. She said there was alcohol involved, there was recreational drug use involved in some of the cases, but they have not been able to confirm a single one of these incidences. You can say maybe they didn't investigate enough, maybe there were certain issues with parts of it, if you're that way inclined, but none of them. Not one, not two, nothing. Now, they also said that um, a significant increase in the level of reporting of these crimes had been generated as a result of the media and social media attention that it was given at the time. And this this was not in public comments. This was a member of Police Scotland talking to the Scottish Policing Authority. So yeah. So on the back of that, the Irish Examiner reached out to the guards here and found that, similarly, the guards have been able to find absolutely no evidence to back up a single one of these cases. So, they say that there had been 39 cases. 39? That many? So, actually quite a lot, considering how late that started. Yes. Uh, But they have found evidence in no incidences, which, on one hand, is a very good thing, Michael, because... It indicates the people who had thought they had been um, you know, forcibly injected with a substance. Anything could have happened to them when they, may, you know, they're out. They could have been sexually assaulted. That that doesn't look like it happened. But the reaction has not been happiness, Michael. But why? But why not, Kerry? Well, I can't, you know, I I can't tell the souls of others,
1: Michael. (laughs) Okay, then describe the unhappiness.
0: Well, the unhappiness is generally of the nature of, obviously, the guards didn't investigate enough. How dare they? Do they not believe women need more support for victims? The general line, it was always going to be, when people who had made an organisation, Michael who had made some very wide-ranging claims about stuff that had no evidence, were suddenly presented with someone going, actually, we've investigated and we can't find anything.
1: Uh, So the reaction was uh, a refusal to accept the, uh, shall we say, the evidence. We said it happened and we don't care what you say, we know it happened.
0: Effectively. Uh, And I think what will likely happen now is everyone will move beyond this and we'll simply not talk about it again.
1: Yeah, until it happens again or doesn't happen again. But it's reported to be happening again, because this is, I think this is one of those cyclical things.
0: You know, I did, I did ask Regina Doherty if she had any views on it, but Michael, I just didn't get an answer.
1: Well, Regina's probably very busy.
0: I mean, considering that Regina Doherty not only talked about it, but put out a press release saying that zero tolerance for needle spiking was needed to protect women. Something which I believe, you know, if you were a woman reading these press releases, and I don't know why a woman or actually anyone would read Fine Gael press releases, but assuming you were, that kind of sounds like you're saying, Michael... This is a real problem, not just something people are saying is happening on
1: social media. Or something which is getting into tabloid and other newspapers in order to sell newspapers, or to serve as clickbait for their online editions.
0: But on the thing that's gotten into the news, uh, but which there has been no negative reporting on, you may have seen stats talking about a new survey looking at sexual harassment and sexual assault amongst university students. Now, there are some statistics in there that are absolutely wild, like rates of rape in the thirties for college students.
1: Yes, I did, but Gary, this is not new. I mean, the, the report is new and it, it's large and bulky. And yes,
0: 276 pages long.
1: The numbers are not new. We, we've talked before about other reports looking uh, at online surveys or surveys in universities in Ireland, I think it was UCD, was it not? Where there were incredible levels of sexual violence against women. And we, we observed at the time, were this to be true, uh, it would be the only choice would be to close down UCD because it was obviously, I mean, it had it, it was a more dangerous place than the Congo at this stage for women. But was also observed that it was straight. What was the solution? They set up a committee. Worse possibly than l- late levels of violence against women that were seen in Germany at the end of the war. At that kind of level. And yet the response of these people who care so much about the safety of women and students was, we'll set up a committee. And that's the point at which we know that they don't believe any of this. You are an academic and you believe that. Like, you believe you've given an accurate figure.
0: That's not what you're calling for. No, it really isn't. So, the interesting thing about this report is this came from the HEA, the Higher Education Authority. And there was a bit of politics behind the launch of this report. It's long and complicated, so we won't go into it here. I for my sins read the entire 276 pages of it
1: well you know uh, my brother o'neill would have said "Gary, offer this up for purgatory and you'll see the light of heaven because anybody that actually reads all of these reports i mean this is a form of temporal punishment that really you are you're storing it up in you're storing up time for yourself in heaven gary because i oh gee you look at the thing and you think no no
0: so there are shall we say michael and this might shock you to learn, issues with the report. (laughs) And I would say that they are issues of a critical and fundamental nature that, and I want to be kind to the researchers who did this, this report, this 276-page report conducted by the Higher Education Authority, and which I have no doubt cost hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of euro to do, is about as statistically valid as a Twitter poll.
1: Wow, that that valid, eh?
0: I'm not going to go through it because no one needs that there are issues of questions there are issues with length there are issues with lots of things but there is one underlying flaw which even if you could handle the other flaws and i don't think they did would totally negate the actual validity of the survey and i just want to quickly mention it because as we said these stats are going to be replicated all through the mainstream they've already been repeated in a lot of newspapers and over time these stats become accepted and people base their emotional state on them, the general idea that comes true that rape is incredibly common at these kind of levels. But the other point I would make is, there's nothing here to say that rape rates in universities are not high. What my point here is, we don't know, because this research is not good, and if we are actually concerned about those high rates, or the potential of high rates, we need to do better research that would actually give us an accurate finding and that this sort of stuff is not good because eventually it comes out that you're, like, your survey is shit. And then we're, what have you got? You've just got, oh, well, maybe there's no rape at all, which doesn't seem to be the case. And it's not what I'm saying is the case. I, I suspect these people were also aware of this methodological issue. So if you go through the... Um, the paper and i'm just going to say it's possible i missed it because it's 276 pages and yes i read it but you can miss a couple of words in that length of thing and it's this the response rate michael as in how many people did you send this survey to because they say they got about 11,000 results that's including both staff and students. If you actually just look at students, it's about 8,000. And it was a very long survey. It was about 70 questions long. Actually, it was exactly 70 questions long. The problem is this they sent it to every university student in the country. Which is about, now it's not mentioned in the report, which is why I think they know this was an issue. If you go back to earlier press releases the HEA sent out about this, they say that's about 245,000 people.
1: So they surveyed, effectively, they surveyed 245,000 people and they got a response of students of 8,000. So you're looking at a a response of about 3%. Okay, right. Now of those 8,000, I mean, you say it's around 70, what, 70 questions? So how many do we actually? How many complete responses do we get out of eight thousand?
0: I cannot remember the number off the back off the top of my head. I think you're down to four thousand somewhere like that.
1: I think it was somewhere between four, three and four thousand something like that. So it's like half or less than half of the the three percent that respond actually respond in total.
0: Yeah. So this this introduces. This level of non-response introduces what's called non-response bias. And I can roughly explain it like this. Let's say you asked a hundred people about something. Let's say um, what they thought about the music of Bon Jovi. Okay? Mm -hmm. The people most likely to respond to that are people who like or dislike John Bon Jovi. People who have a
1: a strong reaction or feeling about this person.
0: People who don't really care about his music are highly unlikely to to go to it. And the longer the survey becomes, the less likely they are. Might you answer five questions on John Bon Jovi? Maybe. Are you going to answer 70? No. And so what non-response bias is, is non-response bias occurs when the people who respond to your survey differ in some way from those who don't. And if you're conducting a survey on, let's say, sexual assault, the people most likely to respond are those who have some connection with sexual assault where they have been sexually assaulted or they know people who've been sexually assaulted they are more likely to respond and as the survey gets longer and more comprehensive they're more likely to stick around yes and this is one of the problems in surveying it always sounds good to get a really large number but the larger the pool of people you send something to the more that non-response bias can come in just because there's more people and once it gets to a certain stage, you would expect it to invalidate your results completely. As in, it, it cannot be dealt with once it's in the actual survey set unless you can identify some other characteristic that you can check for. Uh, I've asked the HEA what they did on this survey to do that. I don't think there's anything they could have done but it was fair to ask them. Uh, They thanked me for getting in touch and told me they'd get back to me as soon as possible. Haven't heard back yet. Don't expect I will will hear back yet because there is nothing in this entire piece of work that actually talks about responses at all or the non-response rate. They don't give those figures. And they, like... Michael, they would be standard figures. If you don't give them, it's because you don't want to give them. And so because of that, it doesn't matter what their results say. It doesn't matter like that there were issues with some of the questions. Because fundamentally, the work is not representative of the population it's surveying. And I would expect it has substantially increased the, uh, the amount of people who will say they have been sexually assaulted or experienced sexual harassment or things of that nature. And this is something that's widely covered in the literature. This is something they should have known was going to be an issue. And they don't seem to have either been aware of it or they don't seem to have tried to deal with it. So I'm not quite sure what's happening here because the CSO is also going to run something on this, presumably something better, shortly. So I don't know why we apparently are paying hundreds of thousands for two different pieces of a report when this one is just, it's not even that it's wrong. You can't say if it's wrong or right. You can't draw any results from it, but it's still going to end up on the papers and people are going to be talking about With 30% or 34% of college-age women have said they have been raped. Now, that is an astronomical figure and wildly at variance, what you would expect.
1: I was saying to you before off air, Gary, I mean, the thing about that number is, on the face of it, and I would say from everything else we know that from work that has been done, uh, both here and in other countries, it seems to be a number which is way beyond what is happening in the real world. But the thing is, it may well be the case. I don't know. It may be the case that there are systemic or structural issues about the way that men interact with the issue of st- the statistics and reporting of rape. It may be that there are systemic and structural problems in the way that rape is investigated, reported and investigated by the police, the way the DPP produce, the way that we do it in our courts, that about the way that we prosecute it. And that that we actually, uh, may, it may be that also that we have evolved in understanding behaviours that are acceptable and unacceptable. There are things that maybe 40 years ago or even 30 years, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, that would have been considered to be minor infractions or not really serious. But now we take far more seriously and rightly so. But unless we do this work seriously and carefully to find out what the truth to the situation is, rather than... Generating stuff like this, which is ultimately meaningless, but will produce again before, clickbait and he- headlines. We're not really going to advance the situation because it's for not that we have any particular interest in doing that, but you produce a report like this and people like us are going to just say, well, it's nonsense. You dismiss it. There is an onus. When you're talking about something as serious as violence against women and sexual violence, particularly. There's an honest to do this thing right, to do it properly, so that we have a real proper understanding. There may be things that we need to do about reporting, about investigating and about prosecuting rape that we're not doing. That would significantly, I mean, my understanding, you you know better than me guy that rape like other crimes you tend to have a small percentage res- responsible for a large portion of those crimes so you could individually the, the Pareto principle is operative here as well and if we were more successful at prosecuting rap- rapists then we'd be more successful at protecting women from those people repeating that crime and other women being raped you know, and know they mean and suffering this violence so we should be trying to find ways Of improving understanding of this. But this kind of thing does nothing to do with that.
0: No, it it doesn't. And you can actually see evidence of um, a non response bias in the piece itself when you look at who responded to it. 77% of respondents were women. And you might look at that and go, well, uh, surely that makes sense because women are more likely to experience sexual assault. To which the answer would be, yes, absolutely. That's the issue. It's not only that women will respond disproportionately. It's that women who have been sexually assaulted will respond disproportionately, and that will inflate all of your numbers by an unknowable extent. And that's the worst part. It's unknowable, so you can't try and counter it. Anyway, that will, that's, that's, that's going to already be in the, the public consciousness. I might write a piece during the week purely on the statistical issues with it, partially because I'm clearly not unpopular enough, and partially because I do think there is some importance in having some record somewhere ...that says, actually, this isn't true. Because it's going to end up in the discourse... ...and it's going to be referred to... ...and no one is going to admit that there were issues with it. As is the standard. Yes, as is the standard. Yes. So moving from stuff like that to something else we were right on... ...and also is kind of funny. So we were talking about the amnesty for illegal aliens.
1: Oh, yes, yes, this is a
0: good one. One of There were many issues with it... ...but one of the points we raised is that... ...it's kind of a slap in the face to legal immigrants who came here, paid taxes, stayed within the system. You know, if their visa was refused, they left or they went to a different visa and it was all a massive kerfuffle and they put in a massive amount of effort. And then, you know, back of the line, these lads who didn't do any of that are coming through. But it looks like that's also annoyed uh, a new group which says it's representing students who came over here legally and that they are planning to sue the Department of Justice because the amnesty is discriminatory as they can't apply for it because they were legal they did everything appropriate and now they can't benefit whereas those who didn't do that all the benefit in the world
1: uh, yeah uh, right now right now the logic is although I'm not sure about the temporal, the, 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 the timings and how that would work it would make sense for if you're a legally present student here to try and find some way of becoming illegal Maybe just stop studying because and uh, stay and get a job because if your visa was here only as a student or if you're uh, maybe actually the way to do it would be to keep studying and to keep working, but to work more than your visa allowed because usually there's a like a 20 hour minimum I can't remember from some of my Brazilian Brazilian friends instance that there's a there is a there's a minimum there's a maximum number of hours you're allowed to work or something if you're here as a student. Maybe if you breached the limit, then that would make you illegal. But it, there just seemed to be something kind of counterintuitive, Gary. Shall we say about the idea that the the best strategy for you within a, within a state is to find a way of being illegal and breaking the law in order to benefit from an offer from the state to get uh, uh, to get citizenship or to get the right to stay in the country, rather than behaving in a legal and correct
0: fashion. Now, I mean, some people might say you guys were against the amnesty to begin with, how can you look at this and mock it when you wouldn't agree with it if they had said they'd bring this in? I think that that is absolutely true to an extent, but like when we were talking about the charges, where if you wanted to go for this, you needed however many hundred, and pointed out that if you're going to do this, if you legitimately believe this needs to be done, then you need to be consistent from start to finish. And saying this needs to be done to get people out of the hands of traffickers and then charging hundreds of euros for people to apply does not make sense. It is not consistent. And it's also actually kind of horrific. Because if you if you believe this is needed to be done to bring people out of the arms of traffickers, but then you will turn away someone who doesn't have, I think it was 400 or so, 500 or so. And just, that's sort of a horrific policy.
1: That is, that's horrible. That is genuinely horrible. Yeah.
0: No, no. We understand that you were trafficked here, and maybe you were involved in the sex trade. Without and you didn't consent to it, you were forced to do it. But you don't really have the level of disposable income we'd want. So time to get back in the gutter.
1: Or we will, we will, we will prosecute the people that did this because you know you've given us this evidence. But when we finished, we're going to deport you because you don't have the five hundred quid to pay. Yeah, that's such a that you know in the world of you know shall we say incentives and disincentives i don't know if they've quite worked that out so on on the same basis if you're going to provide
0: an amnesty yeah there's a strong argument that you should provide it to those who were legally here who are interested in it but the quote the the story is in the times i'll put a link to it below the quote they talked to a solicitor called faisal khan in fsk solicitors his quote is this michael and it's could have just been cut and pasted from the show it's the people who paid traffickers to get into the state and who have worked illegally have been given priority over those who have paid their taxes, have worked within the rules, speak English fluently, and are contributing to society. It is a mockery of the system and counterproductive to punish those who kept to the rules. Probably wouldn't have mentioned the point about speaking English fluently, because that's how you get called a racist. Absolutely. Do you remember we did a show months ago, maybe a couple of years ago, Michael, and in it we joked about how Something about how you couldn't trust foreigners, and we called it You Can't Trust Foreigners because it was a reference to a joke in the actual podcast, and was a no way racist. I still see people sharing screenshots of that and being like, look at the sort of content <laughs> grip would do.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I have a horrible feeling that I'm, I might even have been responsible for the original comment, because that would be pretty typical of you to take something I said out of context and then put it as a headline knowing, or in the hope that it would end up getting me getting it in the neck but thankfully it's always you that gets it in the neck because they don't actually really know that i exist because they don't
0: they don't listen to anything i'm surprised they can read
1: (laughs) yeah that's still good that's i've seen that that does the rounds look at these people look at them what they say you can't trust foreigners like we are the obviously the mouthpieces the denizens of the irish far right yeah yes the 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 the, faisal i'm surprised that he went with the language thing because that is the kind of thing that will get you in trouble. Other than the fact that there are plenty of people who were born and raised in the country that can't speak English fluently but there you go, that's a whole other subject.
0: So basically, the uh, there's a group of these people coming together, I think it's called Students for Justice. The That solicitor, Faisal, says he's preparing up to 10 cases against the, um, against the department. They will actually be quite interesting cases to see.
1: If he was in the UK working within their common law system, the, the UK, particularly when you get up to the what used to be the House of Lords. Now, I think they have... Tony Blair got rid of that, didn't he? So they have a, a Supreme Court instead, which I think is really sad. I mean, for God's sake. Law Lords, far more impressive. Lord Chancellor sitting in the woolsack than just another Supreme Court. Anyway, they have a concept uh, operative, which they call natural justice. Something is offensive to natural justice. And this kind of thing, it seems to me, would fall into that kind of... Like, this, this is offensive to natural justice. Ironically... As a country with a constitution which is full of rights, I don't know. I think that courts will probably say, you know, the minister has a right to, you know, has discretion over these things. And so many of these rights are so hedged and so qualified that, and depending on the mood of the court and things to me at the moment these days, the mood of the court is to to defer to what we might call the executive or to the parliamentary element of the uh, separation that I think they'll get away with it. But then again, I would point out, you know, like, don't take medical advice from us. And I am not actually currently sitting on the Supreme Court. So people may not know that, just in case I am not actually a constitutional lawyer. No, I mean, I I
0: can absolutely see a finding that this is all up to the minister and therefore kosher. But on the face of it, it seems nearly cruel. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's some human rights element to this. That is considered to be persuasive. Then again, the courts might just do what they did with other cases and run the clock knowing that the great thing about legal migrants is eventually they become illegal migrants or they leave the country. So, like, run the clock, then declare that the uh, case is moot. Yeah, they've all all gone home. It's it's It puts them in an interesting position, though, because who do you get to support you in this? Because a lot of the more kind of anti-immigration people who on one hand will be delighted that another way this amnesty has just been shown to be total just kerfuffle. But then if you support them, you're supporting the extension of the amnesty that you don't think should exist at all. Yeah, I mean,
1: effectively, this isn't an attack on the idea of the amnesty, but rather an idea that we should expand the amnesty uh, to people who are already uh, legally. It's not an idea that we should just get rid of the whole thing uh, completely. So... On one hand, yeah, I mean, the anti-amnesty people won't like that. The pro-amnesty people won't like the fact that, well, I, mean, I don't know, maybe they'll roll in and say, yeah, absolutely, let's open it all up. But that will put them in a position where they're in opposition, they're working against the department. And the thing about the department, the department is for many of these groups and many NGOs, and there is a fundamentally the patron. And the dispenser of goodies. So I don't know if they'll want to put themselves against the department. I have a, de- a feeling that the
0: department is nervous about this, and I have been doing everything I can to stoke that nervousness. So it was Grip who reported that um, the department doesn't seem to have any actual figures on this. The department were saying 17,000. They were presenting it as if it was a cap on the scheme, and we pointed out actually it's not a scap. It's an estimate of how many migrants are in the country, undocumented migrants. I noticed after that, that the department stopped referring to it as a cap or briefing people on it. And then the department started saying there were studies that backed up that figure. And I started asking for the names of those studies. When I called the MR uh, Migrants Rights Centre of Ireland, who I was told had prepared those studies, their staff couldn't remember the studies' names, nor could anyone in the department. And Carol Nolan has been bringing up uh, parliamentary questions to Helen McEntee, asking for the names of these studies, Michael. And Helen McEntee didn't give the names in the first one. So Carol Nolan put in another one, asking why she hadn't given the names and what they were. And she didn't answer in that one. And I put in an FOI to the department, asking for the studies. And it wasn't that they refused it, Michael. They just didn't get back to me.
1: It's almost as if they were just making stuff up. And I now have been left with people asking wrong and awkward questions to which there is no effective answer because, as I say, they just were making stuff up. Interestingly enough, Michael,
0: there is, there is a time you have to get back to an FOI request on. It, it is set. But when I ask the department, and I have this tendency with certain departments where on the day or the day before I'm due to receive a, res, a um, response, I will email them to tell them I'm due to receive the response and asking what time it'll be at.
1: Okay. And
0: you would think, Michael, given the size of departments, that wouldn't be necessary. Let me tell you, it absolutely is. What I noticed was the department just didn't respond to my emails. And then they did respond apologizing for being late and saying that they'd reached out to the person handling it, but they had received no response from them. And then they just let the clock run. <laughs> and I just never heard back as to why uh, that wasn't sent in. And to date, I don't know why they responded. But the interesting thing about FOIs, if they don't respond, you can treat it as a, a refusal. But the only thing you can do in that case is you can go through the internal department's appeal process. Right. And the interesting thing there is that that also has a, an amount of time in which they have to get back to you. But by going through the appeal process, it meant that I wouldn't receive the documents before the amnesty launched. Whereas, had I received them on the date I was meant to have them, it would have been the first week of January. Now it's going to be the second or third week of February, but the amnesty starts on the 31st. So, if there is anything embarrassing in there, such as, we don't actually have any figures, and we've basically been wigging it, and sure is that not grand. Yeah. It doesn't come out until it's already started, and once it's something like this starts, it doesn't stop. Because you can't stop it, because you'll have people coming forward on the expectation uh, that they will be dealt with under the policy. So it would be cruel and inhumane to stop it. Whereas if a month in advance, GRIP reported something and it became a scandal and other people started reporting, then you might have to stop the entire thing. And I'm not saying the department deliberately didn't respond to me knowing that. I'm just saying if I was in their shoes, it's what I would have advised them to do. Well, it all, it's all sounds fiendish to me. When you go into the, the comments on this new group, on The Times, on their article, one of the most recommended currently um, comments is, the figure of 17,000 is nonsense. No one knows how many there are. Not the fool McEntee, the department or the NGOs. Read grip.ie for reporting on this disgraceful proposal.
1: <laughs> you see, the far right is out there, Gary, and they're getting their message up. We need... As we were told on recently, on several stories in the papers that we need to spend far more time worrying and studying the advent of the far right. And you see, when you see that kind of comment, you have to get worried, it's seeping out into the mainstream. I do
0: like McEntee's repeated refusal to just answer a parliamentary question in any sort of straight fashion. They're just Nolan, I think, has put in three PQs and each one is just, can you answer this question? Why didn't you answer that question?
1: could you answer the question now? And Mackenzie just doesn't do it. What's the mechanism there? I mean, when they just don't do it, I mean, what, what, what else is there left? I don't rightfully know,
0: but it reminds me of our discussion about the value of a constitution when it is beyond the average person to actually in any way protect their rights through the courts. What is the point of parliamentary questions if a minister can just say, I'm not giving you an
1: answer? In a situation like that, you would have thought that what should happen is that the opposition, the principal opposition party or the mass of the opposition would recognize that the minister was behaving like this, would here uh, recognize that Carl wasn't getting the answer and would pile on and would create such a stink in the doll and problems with tabling and problems with timing that they would have to come up with an answer. And also it would become a big issue in the media straight, well, I thought, why, are, why are not Sinn Féin? Now, of course, no, Carl Nolan as an ex Sinn Féin, or maybe they don't want to give her solace and succour. But it, it is their job as the principal party of the opposition to, to, to hold the government respond, accountable. And it seems to me that if, if there's another story in this story, it's the failure of the principal op- the principal members of the opposition, whether it's Sinn Féin or the Labour Party or, the Social- or whoever, but certainly should be to recognize that the government is being asked questions that they are not being held they're not responding that they're apparently I mean, there may be a perfect reason of answer but until that answer is produced we we we're not in a position to know. but they're not they're not they're not doing their job they're not holding this government accountable that's a, bad, a black mark for mary lou the story i
0: thought would actually get the news uh, papers to report on this our thought was most likely to because i've i've long gone past any moment of hope was the story where I pointed out that the department had been effectively lying to journalists about these surveys because they had sent out press release, they can't name them, they can't prove them by all reasonable accounts. They just lied. Yeah, And they were also briefing journalists directly on this. So I thought pointing out that you know, they are actively lying to you might twig the self-respect of some journalists to go, well, if they're lying to me, perhaps I should not let them do
1: that. But it didn't. It had no impact. A subject uh, that, um, if we, how would I put it, where we have seen a considerable amount of reporting, but again, it's in the, uh, shall we say, the area of where the timing is wrong, is uh, something which you want to move on to. I, I, I have received an unusual degree, because Gary, generally speaking, is the man who gets the uh, the communications, pleasant and unpleasant. But I have had a a significant number of people who have been contacting me, Gary, you'll be surprised, Uh, saying, delighted that the podcast was back and you're back and all that. And that was very lovely. But why haven't you been talking about the thing that happened on the 4th of January? Because the the week, and I'm putting it like this, because the thing that really pissed me off was that having maintained a fairly, I wouldn't say a steady silence, but a a fairly a, a steady lack of analysis or comment on the subject onto the 4th of January. After the 4th of January, everybody in the world seemed to want to talk about minimum unit alcohol pricing and have all sorts of objections and problems with it. But why do you do that after the thing comes into law?
0: Yeah, I saw a fantastic article by uh, Michael McDowell after it had happened about how this was uh, atrocious, it should never have happened, and you did sort of go, where have you been the last four years? Where,
1: where, for, Gary, I can't remember, but I... I remember helping a guy run for uh, a dual election, not the last time, but the election before that. And one of the principles, one of the things on the on the slate was uh, repeal or repeal of blocking of immuno alcohol pricing. It's more than five years ago that I wrote an article in Independent about it. It's more than five years ago I was on prime time about it. I've been talking about this for eight. Years. I mean, wait. Followers of the podcast will know that it is, a, a, it is almost a joke that Michael's obsession, considering I am effectively a teetotaler these days, the subject. But If Michael McDool and people like Michael McDool had been talking about this for the last three or four years and bring it to the attention of the, of the newspapers, well, that's, if, in democracy, it's always a better idea. And just giving you this as a piece of advice, anybody who's out there listening, just if you have a problem with a piece of proposed legislation, stop it becoming law. Because it's much, thats thats better than rather than waiting until it becomes law and then going. Oh, look, that's a really bad idea. In the context of also talking about things that uh, you know we got right and whatever, I just want. One of the things we were, we said was that one of the problems with minimum alcohol pricing was that it assumes that people just behave in this completely passive fashion, wasn't it? Uh, what's his name? Our friend from Greystones, um, Harris, wasn't it, Harris? who rather snidely and jokingly said nobody was going to go drive to the north to get Dutch gold. Well, do you know what? Within a few days of this happening, the number of stories that have appeared in the Irish press on people going to the north to buy drink, there are articles in The Times, in The Independent, in The Examiner, in The Mirror, about what? About people going to the north to buy drink. And the other thing that's really annoying is when people actually went into the shops the day after this came in, on by the way, I might observe, this came into, into into law on my birthday. And a more paranoid person might decide that somebody in the department who'd been listening to this and listening to me whinge about this for, for years thought, wouldn't it be funny if we put it in on Dwyer's birthday? But I'm not that paranoid a person. Other people have observed it to me, but there you go. They went into the shops and they were astonished. Oh, my God, do you see how much this has increased by? They saw slabs of beer, which one which the previous week had been for 19 euro, now we're up to 45 euro. Now, actually, I don't think that it's, I don't it's argue against myself. I think you can still get fairly, you can get slabs of beer for less than that. But you're going to pay a, a cursory glance at some of the prices. Now, one of the things you should, I should remind people is, People talk about this and they, they assume that if you're doing, if you're talking about against this, that you're in the pocket of somebody, you know, the, 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 the brewers or the distillers or Diageo or, the, or the, the the publicans. nobody. And this is important to understand because we have this notion of paranoid corruption in this country that it's all, everybody's been paid off. Well. Nobody in the drinks industry, possibly bar the German multiples and maybe someone like Tesco, but even them, I don't know, are Nobody wants, nobody in the drinks industry in Ireland is objecting to minimum unilateral pricing. The pubs, in fact, the vintners would like more of it because the gap between what you can pay for a drink in the supermarket and what you're paying in the pub is still so large that they would happily see the prices of uh, retail, of sales go up. If you talk to the representatives of the off licenses, they're happy to see it because they find it difficult to compete with groups like say Aldi or Little or Tesco because of their buying power, because uh, of their offer prices. The only objection that the off licences had was that when this was originally muted, Gary, you may remember, it was done on the basis that it would be done in concert with the North of Ireland.
0: Yes, and that allowed us to push it off for a number of years.
1: And so, but eventually, and you know what? I, I just a very cursory glance, I can see why they, this was. If you go to Azdaq, there's a very fine Asda in Yuri. Uh and you want to get a bottle of gin. A bottle of gin in Asda today will cost you eleven euros, eleven sterling to around thirteen twenty-five. A bottle of vodka will cost you around four, maybe fourteen uh, euro. uh If you come south, we're now talking. Your minimum price for uh, for a standard bottle of vodka is what twenty-two euro and nine cent. Now that is a that's double. Well, not quite double, but that's a significant increase. If you look at the cheap, say go to you go to Tesco's you're looking for your cheap lager. Your cheap lager, your Ashfield UK lager is 225, 272 2 euro $2. seventy one uh, for uh, four cans. When I was looking at the beers, now this is not a scientific study, but the the per liter price, which is how you when you go down through them, the per liter price of the cheapest lager in say in the north. It's one twenty-eight a liter, and the cheapest lager I could find that was advertised around here is three forty-one. I mean, that's a massive difference. And people, I was in—I was actually—I was in uh, Little a few days after it came in, and it was quite funny. I was going through the other. You know, they have the saloon doors on the drink bit in Little now, because you have to. That's the way to keep children out, because that's the way to stop young people drinking by putting saloon doors. Both ends of the drink section in a supermarket. That'll work so well. And there was this there was a young couple, and they were standing in front of whatever what I I understood from their conversation was the the bottles that they would normally drink. (laughs) And the two of them were stunned. And they all just they just kept the bastards. And she looked, and the other then the other one would go, Yeah, can you believe it? The bastards. I'm actually using another word than the word they were using, because the word they were using is too offensive even for us to use. And <laughs> the look of stunned horror on their faces, Gary, was genuinely comic. But do you have any, I don't know, sense, belief, that anybody will come along and say, do you know what we should do? Let's repeal this. I,
0: my, my particular interest in this is the research of it. And it's very interesting in that a lot of the research on MUP is actually moderately positive. But a lot of the research on MUP is actually also very bad. And I have noted, Michael, shall we say, a particular ideologic content to a lot of the stuff on MUP. And it's quite interesting when you look at what's public-facing, because when you see the public-facing stuff, it's just, oh, well, uh, drinking fell by this amount, therefore MUP did it. And let's not look at the years before, where we may perhaps see that the rate, the, the, the rate of the fall was in fact larger. But it never goes the other way when you're talking about consequences. So for instance, Michael, did you know uh, that Scottish drug debts have been having a bit of a resurgence?
1: Yes, I did. I saw that.
0: When you start going to like 2019, 2018, you're looking at double the level of drug debts that you saw in 2014. And interestingly, Michael, the median age of drug-related deaths had increased from 28 to 42
1: that to me was the most interesting part of that story
0: it is odd when you look at the sort of people michael who should we say have the most issue with alcohol and their age range yeah. tending to be a little bit older but if you bring that up suddenly there's a talk of well you that's, you can't show
1: any causation there And, you know, Gary, they're absolutely right. I mean, if you were to do that, we would be doing post hoc propter hoc because it happened afterwards, it was caused by. And if we were to say this was caused by the introduction of minimum human alcohol pricing in Scotland, we would be wrong. We cannot actually make a causal connection there. We can't. And you're absolutely right, Michael. I'm
0: just curious about why it's only on this side of things. Yeah. We can't make those claims because a lot of the temperance movement have been very happy to make the claims when they support it. Almost like Michael, they don't have a firm commitment to methodology, but rather want to push particular results.
1: On the other hand, I mean, one of the things you can say is, for example, you you look at hospital hospital admissions related to alcohol issues or uh, overconsumption of alcohol or abuse of alcohol. One of the curious things is, in one of the Canadian promises... Want to say Quebec in this case because it was done on a federal, not on a federal basis. Quebec, but in province by province, and that uh, in in one case anyway, in the year after it was introduced, the actual hospitalizations went up, and that is problematic because it should have gone down. Last year, as you you'll remember, in the year uh, just gone out, our consumption con- 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 for alcohol. Declined by, what was it, 7.5%?
0: I can't remember the exact figures. It went up and I think, wine, but everything else cratered. Do you remember the
1: headline in the Times? was something like, Ireland's homes awash with wine or something.
0: Irish (laughs) homes awash with tsunami of (laughs) cheap wine.
1: That's it. Like it was going to carry away your (laughs) your wife and your child. And then you read into the article and you discover that actually the the alcohol consumption has actually declined by 7.5% of the country. Which is a, by the way, a massive decline in a, in a
0: product. The ability of the temperance temperance people to spin those two things
1: was incredible. That was joyful to see. They talked about the Scottish numbers, of course, ignoring the fact that the years in several years before the introdu- introduction of mop in Scotland that the, they had been declining, which is a, a, a decline which is mirrored in a lot of Western European, Northern European countries. In our case, with one very minor glip exception, we have seen getting on for twenty years of continual secular decline in the consumption of alcohol. We are more than thirty percent down on our peak consumption of alcohol. So, quite what question this is, as we said before many times, this is supposed to answer. I don't know, but I have been surprised, Gary. I don't know about you, about the. Le- about a, a, a people that seem to be capable of swallowing anything when it comes to the health. And I saw a headline there only a couple of days, in the last day or so, about Leo coming out saying that this will save lives. Now, we'll see about that. Um, people seem to be... A lot of people seem to be pissed off about this. I think that Sinn Féin missed a trick here.
0: I think Sinn Féin also missed a trick. And also one I'm kind of surprised they missed. Because this would have seemed... Um really just right up their street, particularly given the the demographics. And I'm not sure why they missed it, but I would make one note. Since it became increasingly clear that Sinn Féin is likely to form the next government, a lot of the NGOs and civic institutions have been making as much of an effort to engage with Sinn Féin as they can right? in trying to work with them in a way that Sinn Féin has had for a while. Like some of Sinn Féin's policies have been very NGO influenced for a while. But I have a feeling that's increased and that Sinn Féin is basically buying in to a large part of the non-civil service permanent government.
1: That may be true. I, was, I had an interesting conversation with um, a, an elected member of uh I won't say what. One, of Sinn Féin, and who was very, very annoyed that the party had not taken this on uh, as an issue and had opposed it, because in his words, he said, "This is just a naked attack on poor people," which it is. This is a just an attack on people with low on low incomes, and also buried in it is a deeply nasty classist notion, which you'd be surprised—at least I've been surprised—about how widespread it actually still is that poor people drink lots and they're out there, the, shall we say, the undeserving poor are sitting in their fetid departments sculling beer all the time instead of getting out there and getting on their bike and working. When We know from, well, we know, the stats, the statistics tell us that alcohol consumption is actively correlated with income, that people who earn more drink more, and actually the poor don't drink that much. A lot of,
0: particularly middle, upper middle class, uh, usually women, have quite... Quite substantial alcohol issues due to particularly wine.
1: Wine is yeah, yeah, a bottle of wine.
0: One one point actually I should make just because I was talking about the Scottish drug debts. Um, when you look at, at alcohol consumption in Scotland, the trend is downward even before the uh, minimum unit pricing is brought in. Nearly running identical to that, drug debts in Scotland were increasing long before uh, MUP came in. I think they've hit records the last seven years in a row. Right. So. Effectively, the you could say that there is a link there, and there may be, I'm, there's no evidence that I'm aware of to show it. But it seems to have existed before MUP. So please don't raise the point about increasing drug debts, as if I had, on the understanding I had said there is. You know, MUP comes in, drug debts come up. It's actually pretty much exactly the same system as uh, MUP. There's there's an existing trend already
1: there yeah. before it's brought in. One thing that I wonder that may have an effect. It just that politics. It is on the ground and in the hard reality of economics. And that's, at the end of the day, it usually comes back to it's the economy stupid. And while at the, at the moment we're, we're seeing the beginnings of people driving up from Dublin to for parties and whatever. But as this could, gets bedded in and people become more and more aware of the, the this really substantial price differentials. Because... It, while there is minimal, minimal pricing in Scotland, and I believe also in Wales, um, they, we have gone quite a bit farther in the pricing increase than they have there. So the, the, the price differentials are really substantial. I mean, even at the up, <laughs> I don't know if this is actually t- I, to do with MUP or just duty. The difference between the Tesco brand and uh, Vintage Champagne, for those who are concerned about that, as opposed to their lagers, is €25 Euro in, in the north and €35 Euro in the south. But you're you're on you're up around Navin occasionally, Gary. I mean, how far is Navin from the north? What's the nearest point to Navin? It'd be less than an hour, wouldn't it? You would hit the north. From Dublin, you can you can be over the border surely in an hour getting the motorway. Sligo is forty minutes from Belcoo. I think that there's a hell of a large part, part of the population that is within an hour's drive.
0: I mean you could you could get from Navin to Nuri in less than an hour. And a lot of the country is in that situation. But even there, Michael, we're talking about travel times. The cost increases have been so substantial that if you were in a neighbourhood, it would absolutely be worth paying someone just to go up with a van and get stuff, not just for you, but also neighbours.
1: Absolutely. And it'll it'll be interesting to see... Considering we have become so obsessed with the notion of an open border in Brexit and all that, whether or not we're going to actually start to see as a consequence of MUP, will they have to start introducing some kind of bank check that people are bringing in this bring drink in, and they in the common because it's a common area. Will they be able able to do anything about it anyway? Are they going to invent some kind of ad hoc restriction? A lot of times things don't happen because people just
0: aren't used to doing them. So if you get people used to, let's say, paying someone to go somewhere else to get alcohol on the basis that it is for personal usage, the idea that Ireland has particularly cheap alcohol compared to Europe is going to be something people twig pretty Quickly is absolute nonsense. And you could pay a lad as easily to drive over to Europe on the ferry and come back for probably not that much more once you get used
1: to the idea of doing it. Absolutely. I mean, I'll I, I give you an example. I, I, it's not what we're, we're talking about, but just one of the most perniciously taxed things in this country is sparkling wine. And the tax, the duty on sparkling wine is double the duty on still wine. And what the definition of sparkling wine is nothing to do with its price or quality it's to do with the pressure exerted on the bottle by this by the bubbles within it so a sparkling wine is the wine you know that that wire cap and the mushroom cork as opposed to the ordinary cork that if you see that on it that kind of cork indicates that that wine is over a certain number of bars of pressure and therefore and therefore is considered to be a sparkling wine i can't remember off the top of my head but i think this the duty on sparkling wine in ireland is around six quid a bottle now I mean, if you if you were doing a wedding, you know, and you wanted to have bubbles, and you're not going for champagne, although even with champagne it would be worthwhile because you can get cheap, good, cheap. Go to go, over to, go over to go to the Loire, or go to Italy if you want to go that far, because obviously it's going to cost more to go. Over to. But you can you can find a lad who will sell you a bottle of prosecco from the from the vineyard for a couple of quid, two euro. You'll find somebody, I'm sure who will do the same if you're doing quantity. And when you see, that's a bottle that would retail in Ireland by the time you bring it over and put a not a very big markup on it. That will be retailing for €14, Euro, seven times the price. If you've got a big big thing on, it'll be worth your while. And in fact, there are, there are now people looking at setting up clubs, wine clubs, which will basically be a way of importing for personal use for groups of people. And I don't see how they're going to stop it, because effectively, the whole point of European law was the idea that if you buy something in Athens, it's essentially the same as buying it in Dublin. That's the single market. That's the nature of the single market. So if you can buy something outside Milan or in Palermo or in Avignon or wherever, and you're doing it, you're not doing it for resale and they can't show that you're doing it, you're just doing it for your own consumption. I don't see why a group of people couldn't get together. And not just send out a Vanguard Send out an Arctic. So uh, if anyone is
0: interested in that idea, the EBI is considering doing it. Uh, should you be interested in joining our wine club? The EBI Wine Club. The EBI Wine Club. Not saying we will. It's just a thing we're kicking around. But it does have the advantage of not only making a policy point, but being really, really funny.
1: And it will finish up with the EBI Wine Club party at the end of it, which will be actually a demonstration of the operation of the market and uh, an attack on unnecessary taxation, things like that. So it's perfectly legitimate within the uh, structures of the EBI as an educational charity.
0: And I would say from, you know, from personal experience, Michael is very good at picking out very high quality wines at their price point.
1: <laughs> at a very good price point.
0: So so please do send me an email at Gary at Gript if you are interested in this... Uh, entrepreneurial opportunity
1: um however uh until then in this sober january which is also vegan god almighty gary we're now vegan january we are living in a cromwell would object to the levels of dreary puritanism we are exerted when people are advertising clonic hilty vegan sausage and puddings at me i really think you know what is the point Anyway, until then, um, stay vegan and stay sober. And we'll be back, um, I suppose, next Sunday unless something else radical happens. But I can't imagine it will between then and now. And mind yourselves. All the best.